Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's what they did to us. They took young kids, they were easy to do, we were easy to throw away, and they just took and they throw us away. And now society won't, won't try to correct the problem. Um, what you saw, and, I, and this is really, I think, a formula for all these cases, you saw cases that when you know, terrible crime happens uh, and law enforcement doesn't have sort of immediate answers, they um, center on a person as the a potential suspect and then, you know, sort of through tunnel vision, um, build a case around that person while ignoring um, signs that they may, in fact, not be the person. I'm news columnist John H. Juarez, and welcome back to the second season of Murder on the Space Coast, where we will be shining a light on several troubling stories from the 1980s about men whose freedom was taken from them unfairly. These were men who were picked out as suspects for crimes they did not commit, who were prosecuted using fake science and testimony from lying jailhouse snitches. These were men who were convicted and spent years and years in prison. They were easy targets. You asked us to dig deeper into these cases, and here we are. Our goal? Simple, really. We want to answer one basic question that has nagged us for years. How did this happen here in Brevard County, Florida? How did men get prosecuted and convicted for crimes they did not commit? Not once, not twice, but three times for sure, and there may be a fourth still in prison. Did Brevard County prosecutors frame innocent people? The stories you're about to hear took place on the space coast of Florida over a period of about three years. You'll hear the name of one prosecutor, Dean Moxley, over and over. You'll hear the same jailhouse snitch used in two different cases. Clearly, inmates like confessing to him, right? One lawyer quipped to us that this snitch heard more confessions than a Catholic priest You'll repeatedly hear the name of an expert witness, a dog handler, John Preston, who showed up again and again when a case needed help. An expert witness who turned out to be a lying fraud. These are the stories of justice ignored. These men you'll hear about were identified by police and prosecutors as the suspects. And if the immediate evidence fell a little short, well, there were other ways to make a case. It almost seemed like a playbook, if you will, for getting a conviction. And it worked. Here are a few snippets of the stories we will be following over the next few months. William Dillon sat in the front passenger seat of his brother's Camaro and pulled a long drag from the joint the two brothers were sharing. The brothers wanted to get a little buzz on before going for a few drinks at the Pelican Bar just across the street from the beach where they were parked. Dylan, or Bill as friends called him, 
was a tall, handsome 21-year-old still working on trying to figure it all out. He was once considered to have the potential to be a professional baseball pitcher. A stint in the Army didn't quite work out, and there was a coilute arrest in nearby Orlando a couple of years earlier. He knew his mother and adopted father were growing weary. But it was the summertime, and there was nothing like getting high on the beach and then hanging with friends. Plus, he was pretty good with the ladies, and again, it was summertime in Florida. It was August 1981, and there was plenty going on at Canova Beach, one of the many beautiful beaches that line the Space Coast's 72 miles of Atlantic Ocean front. It lies at the end of a main thoroughfare, O'Galley Boulevard and State Road A1A, making it easily accessible from three directions. The beach, known for many years as a gay hookup spot, was overgrown with cabbage palms, sea grapes, and sea oats, offering plenty of hiding spots where strangers could meet for anonymous encounters. When police approached the car and asked them what they were doing there, Bill thought he was getting in trouble for smoking pot. He couldn't have been more wrong. Other than the fact of any activities that I might be doing, any like smoking a joint or having some reefer on me or something like that, it has nothing to do with any kind of murder scenes or anything like that. So it doesn't, it doesn't really come in my, in my head that, that they're really trying to arrest me for murder. Juan Ramos worked at a crappy factory job in Coco and lived in a crummy neighborhood within walking distance of that job. None of that mattered, though. The 24-year-old was living his own version of the American dream. You see, only a year earlier, he made the 90-mile journey from Cuba to freedom as part of the now-infamous Mariel Boatlift, the one where Fidel Castro emptied his prisons and insane asylums and set them free, bound for American shores. Ramos was married, was learning English, and the married couple had even made friends on their street, Mark and Sue Cobb, whom he and his wife would sometimes buy Amway products from. On a Wednesday night in April 1982, Ramos went to the Cobb residence to pay for some Amway cleaning products he had purchased. Sue Cobb dutifully wrote it down in her receipt book. That night, Ramos slept peacefully, not knowing that entry would soon turn his American dream into a nightmare. Here is his attorney, longtime public defender, J.R. Russo. I will bring up the Juan Ramos case, and they'll ask me, um, did he do it? Um, I don't think Juan Ramos did this at all. Um, obviously, the physical evidence didn't tie him to it in any way, shape, or form. Wilton Dedge had just turned 20 years old, and like William Dillon, was trying to figure out what to do with his life. But the long-haired high school dropout was good with his hands and enjoyed fixing things. He found the job repairing car transmissions in New Smyrna Beach and found that he was pretty good at it. Not quite sure if that was the career path he wanted to follow, Wilton still spent most of his free time surfing, skating, and of course, tinkering with his motorcycle. He lived with his parents in Port St. John. On December 14, 1981, Wilton stopped at a local Jiffy Mart and hung out for a bit with some friends, unaware that nothing would ever be the same. Basically, they found me and they built a case around me. Not facts, but they built their evidence to make it look like me. Everyone called Gary Bennett Pee Wee. Born exactly one day before Juan Ramos came into this world, 
Bennett had turned 26 years old a month before he and his family drove to the hospital to see his brother, who had suffered a workplace accident. It hadn't been an easy 26 years for Gary. He had run away from home as a child and spent time in youth homes. His father was an alcoholic who routinely doled out beatings for offenses his young children committed. Gary was often the target, and his father once bashed his head with a two-by-four. That may have been the cause of the seizures that would plague Gary for the rest of his life, though Gary says the epileptic attacks were the result of a coral snake bite. There were suicide attempts, fires set, and attempts by Gary to get the mental health treatment he needed. On the way to the hospital to see his brother, Gary noticed a lot of police activity at the nearby trailer park. When the cops were still there later that night, Gary wandered over to see what had happened. The next 26 years would make his first seem like a picnic. Here I am chatting with Gary in 2016. Just again, for the record, did you ever have sex with Helen Nardi? No, I did not. Even like way before this? Never. Okay. Never. And did you kill Helen Nardi? No, I did not. Have you ever killed anybody? No, sir. I am more than willing at any time to take any type of test that they could possibly come up with to prove my innocence. Four young men. Four men with not a whole lot going on for them. Four men who police zeroed in on quickly as responsible for heinous crimes, even when evidence seemed lacking. Four men convicted and sent to prison. William Dillon. Juan Ramos. Wilton Dedge. And Gary Bennett. Juan Ramos was sentenced to die. Four men. Two were later exonerated. A third found not guilty in a retrial. The fourth sits in prison, swearing that he's innocent. And, well, if you listened to season one of Murder on the Space Coast, you might very well agree. You asked us to do this. At a special event, after season one of Murder on the Space Coast, you asked me to dig deeper into these cases. You asked me to find out what happened to justice in Brevard County in the 1980s. Why were innocent men convicted of crimes they didn't commit? Why did prosecutors bolster weak criminal cases with faked evidence and the questionable testimony of jailhouse snitches? Why did prosecutors take shortcuts that advanced their careers at the expense of vulnerable young men? What was going on? What happened to justice? Justice, it's a pretty word and an even prettier ideal. Unfortunately, it is left to men and women to carry it out and make sure it is available to everyone. We will try and figure out whether all this was just a matter of bad luck, incompetence, or was something else going on. Seth Miller of the Innocence Project of Florida seems to think the latter. There's no question that it's widespread corruption. Um, it's, it's fraud. Um, it's caused an unknown number of wrongful convictions, three of which we know about, Juan Ramos, Wilton Dedge, and William Dillon. And somebody has to do something about this. In each of these cases, plus the one we heard last season, the story of Gary Bennett, the methods used to convict these innocent men looked awfully similar, like a playbook on how to convict someone, guilt or innocence aside. It's a playbook filled with junk science 
expert witnesses who will say anything the state wants, and deals cut with these jailhouse snitches. In other words, you build a case based on nothing, and you present it really, really well to a jury brought up to believe that prosecutors and police tell the truth. And if the playbook works, you do it again and again and again and again. You'll see exactly what I mean as we go on. Again, here is attorney Seth Miller of the Innocence Project of Florida. What we saw when we started to look at a lot of these cases was same people from the Brevard County Sheriff's Office, the same people from the prosecutor's office down there in Brevard um, who were involved over and over and over again um, in, in these cases. And so when you started to look at them, you saw the same people and a sort of a formula for how um, they were able to obtain convictions in cases that, uh, in, many, in many cases, the, the evidence of guilt, at least at the start, was scanned. And so um, what you saw, and, I, and this is really, I think, a formula for all these cases, you saw cases that when you know, terrible crime happens uh, and law enforcement doesn't have sort of immediate answers, they um, center on a person as the a potential suspect and then you know, sort of through tunnel vision um, build a case around that person while ignoring um, signs that they may, in fact, not be the person. And so when you have that situation and you're sort of manufacturing a case of some uh, against someone who um, may be actually innocent, we now know some of them were actually innocent, you end up having gaps or holes in the case. So then the question is, what do you do? Because you got to prosecute it. So you take steps to fill in those gaps with evidence that's going to help you secure a conviction. And what we saw in a number of these cases is really um, two key tools for filling those gaps. The irony of all this is not lost on me. You see, this all played out in Brevard County, Florida, a gorgeous 72-mile stretch that hugs the Atlantic shore and is the home of the Kennedy Space Center, a hub of dreams and imagination where mankind came to fulfill its vision of space travel, where Americans have launched technological feats that stunned the world with their brilliance. It seems oddly ironic that in this same place, fake science became a crucial tool used to destroy lives and trick juries comprised of good people who believed that the judicial system was fair and honest. Lives were destroyed, careers advanced. Here is longtime public defender J.R. Russo, who retired a few years ago. As has been demonstrated many times recently, there are many people in our prisons today serving time for crimes they did not commit. This has not happened by accident. We no longer abide by the maxim it is better that 99 people go free than to tragically convict one innocent person. Again, I'm John A. Torres, and welcome to the second season of Murder on the Space Coast. If you haven't already listened to the first season, I urge you to go do so now. Murder on the Space Coast deals with graphic and sometimes hard-to-listen-to details, and sometimes the language can get a little salty. It may not be appropriate for younger or sensitive listeners. We're not going to make you wait an entire week for new episodes of the season. 
we will be rolling out two new episodes a week, one on Mondays and another on Thursdays, for seven weeks. There will also be lots of extras online at floridatoday.com, including photos and videos, timelines, documents, and transcripts of every episode. Over the next several weeks, we will be going through each of these cases in depth and let you draw your own conclusions as to what was really going on here. But before we get to that, here's what happens when an innocent person gets sent to prison. Here's what it's like when cops and prosecutors ruin your life by saying you did something you didn't do. When prosecutors get a jury to believe that you committed a crime and they convict you. Nothing happens to the prosecutors. They keep on prosecuting. But here's what happens to you. Well, I've tried to figure out a way to explain it to somebody, but you can't. I mean, you really can't. Just, I don't know. Think of sitting in the doctor's office for two hours and then think about doing it 24 hours a day and never getting to see him. I mean, I don't even know how to explain it to people where they could really grasp. You know, it's hopeless. You wake up and you can't go nowhere. You can't do nothing. You can't go to the fridge and get a drink. You're stuck in a eight by 10 and, you know, how do you explain that to somebody? You know, unless they've been imprisoned or, you know, it's it, you can't explain it. I've tried, I've tried to think of ways and people just, I don't think they grasp it. You know, it's, I wish I could. That was the voice of Wilton Dedge. And I was thrilled when he agreed to be interviewed for this because, well, he rarely grants interviews and is usually not real keen on talking about what happened to him. He'd rather concentrate on looking ahead. And after what he went through, how can you blame him? Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, we focus on the tragic tale of a 20-year-old sent to prison for a violent and heinous act he did not do. We focus on the story of Wilton Dedge. And like I say, when I, when I first learned about all this, I didn't take it seriously. I was a kid and I thought, okay, I'm innocent. I know that I'm gonna get proven innocent. You know, I'm not worried about it. But yeah, it kind of opened my eyes up. But that's how I was brought up. My mom and dad believe in a system. Now they don't. Well, I was brought up to respect police officers. And, and you know, most of them are good. But you got, you got bad people in everything. And I'm sitting there not knowing anything about the case, except a little rumor here, and I didn't read the case reports. But I realized this is a really crummy case. It's, it really sucks. Uh, uh, Wilton Dedge, he had an airtight alibi. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres. And you can follow me on Twitter, at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.